This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we explore race and the criminalization of failure in the United States. With me is Sean Drake. And so once I found out about these two schools and this kind of alternative education system, then the book became a comparative ethnography between Pinnacle and Crossroads. The differences in the curriculum, differences in the physical space, differences in the racial composition, the differences in the teacher responsibilities and classroom dynamics. So it's a form of, of segregation. It's a form of, of tracking sort of different levels of a curriculum, except it's tracking that's happening between schools rather than within them. Sean Drake is an assistant professor of sociology in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University and a senior research associate at the Maxwell Center for Policy Research. His new book is Academic Apartheid, Race and the Criminalization of Failure in an American Summer. Sean Drake, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks for having me. So can you tell me a little bit about this school where you conducted an ethnographic study called Pinnacle High School? What was it like walking the ground of Pinnacle? So Pinnacle is a large public high school in suburban Southern California, and it is uh, on 55 acres of land. It has multiple buildings to house different courses. It's got a math department, the humanities department, social sciences, languages. So it's got these different departments housed in different buildings. Lawns are always cut very green, manicured, trees everywhere. It's a very green campus. It's an open campus, so students can enter from kind of from all sides. It's a very much, you know, it looks like something you'd see in a movie or on a, on a television show. It looks like a lot of college campuses. And so walking around there, you really feel like you're sort of at a major institution and you know there are athletic facilities there's an olympic sized swimming pool tennis courts all weather track football field there's a baseball field that's kind of in immaculate condition so it really has everything that students need so you really sort of kind of see those resources and opportunities really as you're walking around uh, the campus there. And this is a public school. It's not a private school by any means. That's right. It's a public school, you know, a little bit over 2,000 students. So it's a public school, which means that you know, students attend Pinnacle if they you know, live within the school's residential catchment zone. So, you know, there are neighborhoods that are tied to certain certain schools. And so the students who enroll in Pinnacle do so because of the zip code in which they live. And so what's the racial makeup of the school? Because in the U.S., school racial makeup is, you know, as you're saying, is tied very closely to the community makeup because that's the, the public schools serve those communities. So this school looks quite a bit like the surrounding area, which I call Valley View, which is a, a pseudonym. I think one of the defining features of the school is that it is over 50% Asian American in terms of the student population. And that is something that is reflective of Valley View, which is nearly 50% Asian American in composition. And most of those are Chinese American and Korean American American families. So this is a destination city for many East Asian immigrants, you know, who moved to Valley View because of its good weather, really well-rated public schools, very low crime rate, especially uh, violent crime. It's, It's one of the lowest rates of violent crime in the city of its size 
in the United States. So I think all of those things make it a really attractive place to move, especially for immigrants of some means. And so tend to see, you know, quite a few Chinese and Korean businesses around around the city. And certainly this is a, a school that is sort of targeted by both those immigrant communities. You know, there's also a sizable population of, of, of white students, you know, kind of in the in the 40 percent range. And then the, you know, black and Latinx students together comprise about 10 percent of Pinnacle's population. And that's similar to what the numbers would be or what the percentage would be in, in Valley View overall. So I think that the school in many ways is reflective of the larger population. Right. And so what is it like to be a student at Pinnacle? I mean, I would imagine it's quite different depending on, you know, who you are in a way. What is your racial background? What is your immigration background? What are your parents' backgrounds? So, you know, take me through it. What are some of the stories that you found about students navigating and studying in Pinnacle? Yeah, it's a really interesting school. I would say the kind of defining feature of the school is that it's very academically rigorous. There's a lot of pressure on the students to perform. There's a lot of competition among students for grades, for test scores, for college admissions. And this is something that actually starts before students even arrive at Pinnacle, you know, when they're 14 years old for ninth grade. So it has this reputation that extends beyond. So students in middle school, you know, they might talk to each other. Oh, yeah, you're going to Pinnacle. Oh, that's, yeah, I heard there's a lot of homework. You know, these are sort of rumors and things that swirl around. And then they get there and they find out that, you know, many of these things are true. So it's a school where students are working really hard. It's a school where students are taking multiple kind of honors or advanced placement type classes uh, to try to help them with their college admissions. But it's also a school where students are playing sports or in the band or involved in arts, taking multiple languages. So it's a school, I think, where students are just doing a lot and they're doing this with an eye towards uh, college admissions. And not just any college, but, you know, an elite college, a, a renowned college, a college that has a reputation kind of being, uh, you know, this sort of excellent institution among colleges. And so that's sort of the vibe there. And you see that kind of in all different, you know, aspects of the school. There's a couple ways that you sort of, you see this play out. For example, it's even in the architecture of the school. So when you approach the main office, there's an archway that has the name of the school on the, the kind of over the top of it. And on either side of the archway, there in sort of these metal letters attached to the brick, you see National Exemplary School on one side and California Distinguished School on the other side. And these are actually annual awards. I've seen them in other California schools, maybe hung as banners in a gym or in a main office. But here, Pinnacle has essentially tattooed these distinctions to its building as these kind of immutable aspects of its institutional culture and identity. And so in the book, I write about this thing I call the uh, institutional success frame, which is this collective kind of definition of achievement that's cultivated by all institutional actors, whether it be teachers, administrators, students, other staff, parents. And so at Pinnacle, it's what I described. It's sort of this very rigorous environment where everybody's trying to get a 4.0. And the problem with that is, you know, not everybody gets a 4.0. And so those who don't attain this high level of success, especially those who may fall well short of it for whatever reason, you know, can tend to feel a certain amount of, of alienation. But also what I find is that sometimes even students who are having great, what we may on paper think of as great success, can feel a certain amount of alienation because they don't feel like their success is their own. You know, they feel like they're working for what their parents want. You know, they want to play guitar, but their parents say, no, you have to play violin or no, you have to take an internship in a biotech laboratory. And they don't even like 
bio or tech. So I think you, I also saw that quite a bit in the school for sure. Last thing I'll mention briefly is they had something in the spring of every year called a college sweatshirt day where students would wear different apparel from the college that they had been admitted to. And it was a way to kind of celebrate the achievement. The school would take pictures, put it on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter to, to say, hey, you know, these are the type of colleges and universities that our graduates get admitted to. And there was one young woman I met who didn't wear a sweatshirt or any other kind of apparel that day. And I remember asking her about it. And she said, I didn't wear anything because it was embarrassing because I'm just going to community college. I'm not going to a four-year school. I'm not going to a you know, a fancy school. And I found out later on that she was the first in her family to go to college. In fact, her parents were Mexican immigrants who had a middle school education and were sort of day laborers and farmers. And so for her, just graduating high school and going on to college was this sort of tremendous kind of intergenerational achievement in her family. But, you know, in some ways it kind of paled in comparison to the achievements of her friends whose, you know, parents had gone maybe to graduate school and now they were going to the maybe the same college their parents had gone to. So in many ways, I think you could say that, you know, this student was, you know, who's going to community college was in some ways even more successful, but she didn't feel it, you know, kind of in comparison to some of her peers. And so what is the, you know, at Pinnacle, how many students actually do end up going to four-year colleges? Like, are they successful in this institutional success frame, like by the metrics? Yeah, so the school has roughly a 100% graduation rate, which is quite high for a public school with over 2,000 students. So that would be a graduating class of you know, roughly 500. So it's roughly a 100% graduation rate. Something like 96% of Pinnacle graduates go on to college and just over 70% go to, to four-year colleges and universities. That n number is, I think, somewhat artificially low because there are a certain number who you know, we'll take a year off to do to do whatever, kind of they'll take a gap year, as it's called, before going on. You know, there are some certainly who go to community college and, you know, and many of those, you know, end up transferring on to a four year. So I don't I don't actually know the percentage who kind of eventually graduate from a four year college, but I would assume that it would be somewhat higher than 70 percent. That 70% figure would be those who just sort of start the next fall at a four-year university. But those are pretty competitive numbers, you know, particularly for a large public high school. But I think there's sort of a, another kind of point in your question, which is that, you know, there are still, you know, this sort of 30-ish percent of students who don't go directly to a four-year college. And so for all of those students, in some way or another, you know, there's sort of some level of explaining to do. You know, it's like, oh, why aren't you going to Berkeley? Or why aren't you going going to New York University or why aren't you going to UCLA? And I think that that is something that, you know, many students have to answer. Just like, why aren't you wearing a sweatshirt from your college? Like, what's going on? Yeah, God, it must be so tense and so much anxiety, I would imagine. Lots of anxiety, mental health, sleep deprivation. You know, I had parents tell me my daughter's at Stanford and I'm so proud of her for that, but she doesn't look well. You know, she looks like she's killing herself for these achievements. And I just don't know if it's worth it. So I had several parents tell me sort of stories like that, you know, trying to kind of rein their rein students in, pushing them really hard and then saying, oh, maybe we, maybe we push them a little too hard and trying to dial it back. But sometimes it could be too late. 
So yeah, definitely a pressure cooker of a school and, you know, one where students had a lot of success on paper, but, you know, sometimes that success could, you know, could take a toll. So I guess that raises an interesting question about what happens to the students who don't do well, because, you know, in any school, there's going to be some students who do not do well on academic rigor and, and this really high pressure cooker environment, as you've just described. So what happens to them? Are they given extra support and then end up graduating and, you know, going on to these four-year schools if you, as you've just described? Well, you know, what happens to these students who are struggling? Yeah, I think students who are struggling are not, you know, I would say that it's a very tough environment for students who are struggling because the idea in Valley View, and this pervades all of the comprehensive high schools in the district, not just Pinnacle, you know, is that, you know, high academic achievement is expected. And so for students who struggle, you know, they've fallen short of that. And I think there's a tendency in this district to blame students for struggling, to sort of attribute it to something maybe internal to the student, you know, their motivation, the values in their family, their goals, their ambitions, their aspirations, their expectations of themselves. And certainly that may be true some of the time, but I think more often than not, you know, there are things maybe beyond a student's control that can limit their achievement. Or maybe they simply don't want to take five honors courses and stay up past midnight every night and be tired all day and be spread thin every month of the year. Some students don't want to do that. They want to have fun. They want to hang out with their friends more. They want to do those things too. And I think that's okay. So I think the issue is, you know, for students who don't fit that mold, who don't fit into that institutional success frame, they can feel alienated. They can feel marginalized. And the school, you know, can actually push them out. One thing that I found is that schools like Pinnacle tend to cater to students who are sort of already doing well. You know, they tend to it's like they're in the business of polishing diamonds. You know, they, they want to take the students who are achieving really, really highly and see, you know, maybe we can get this student into an Ivy League school. And that's kind of their mission. And I think that that means that students who are, you know, more to the middle or struggling more actually tend to fall by the wayside, tend to kind of fall through the cracks more. So you said that they, the school itself can push them out. So how does that work? What does that actually look like? So it's interesting. When I started this book project, I was just interested in Pinnacle High School. It's a school similar to a school that I attended, you know, in my youth. And just looking at the percentages, looking at the ethnic and racial diversity, that was also similar to my own experience, where I was often one of very few black or brown students in any class that I was ever in growing up. And so I was interested in the experiences of black and brown students who were at Pinnacle. What was their experience like in the school? How did they find community? What was their experience like outside of school in their neighborhood? How did that affect their in-school experiences? How did that affect their aspirations and expectations in the school? And so I started out by hanging out in this uh, U.S. history classroom, and there was a student named Jamal. He was black. He was a sophomore. He was a good athlete. He was on the varsity football and basketball team as just a sophomore. And I would get a seating chart 
from the teacher for each class so I could see who was there that day. And you know, this was a class that had maybe, it was a big class, maybe 35 students in, in it. And you know, maybe three or four of the students were black. And so one day I got to school and I noticed that his name had been crossed off the seating chart, like marked out in a Sharpie permanent. And I said, that's sort of funny. So after class, I asked this teacher, uh, you know, what happened to Jamal? And she said, oh, he's been transferred to Crossroads for credit recovery. And so at that time, I didn't know what Crossroads was. I didn't know what credit recovery was. I had lived at that time in Valley View for three years. I didn't, I knew about all the other high schools. I didn't know about Crossroads. I had never seen it. I had never heard of it. And I had never heard of credit recovery in my life. And so I asked her about that. And she said, oh, that's an alternative high school where students go if they're behind on their credits, if they've fallen behind. And so it's a place where they can go, they can make their credits up so they can graduate on time with their class. That's the goal. They go there and then they transfer back at some point after they've made up their credits and then they can graduate, you know, from Pinnacle uh, or from one of the other comprehensive high schools with their class. And so Crossroads is not a neighborhood school. It draws its students from the four other comprehensive high schools in the district. And so I went home and I Googled the school uh, as well on the district website. And I was really struck by difference in the size of the school. It only has about 200 to 250 students. Students are transferred in waves over the course of each academic year. And the racial composition of the school was very different. So roughly half of the student population at Crossroads is Black or Latino, whereas at Pinnacle, that was about 10%. At Crossroads, less than 10% of the student population identifies as Asian, whereas that's over 50% at, at Pinnacle. Um, the percentages of, of white students are roughly the same. But I was most struck by the fact that, you know, Black and Latino students were overrepresented by roughly a factor of five uh, in the district at Crossroads and kind of similar numbers of underrepresentation for Asian students. And so I wondered you know, what's going on here? Why are more of the black and brown students being transferred to Crossroads? There were also, you know, many more students who the district uh, categorized as socioeconomically disadvantaged. That was roughly 50% of Crossroads and just over 10% of Pinnacle. So a very different socioeconomic status among the student body and also students with disabilities who were almost 20% of Crossroads and just about 5% of Pinnacle. So you have all these overrepresentations of, you know, of, of black and brown students, of students with disabilities, of socioeconomically disadvantaged students. Why are those the students being shepherded out of the comprehensive high schools? Why are those the students being funneled to crossroads? And so once I found out about these two, about these schools and this kind of alternative education system, then the book became a comparative ethnography between Pinnacle and Crossroads. The differences in the curriculum, differences in the physical space, the differences in the racial composition, the differences in the teacher responsibilities and classroom dynamics. So that's really what the, the book is, is about. So it's a form of, of segregation. It's a form of, of tracking sort of different levels of a curriculum, except it's tracking that's happening between schools rather than within them. And to me, that was what was you know somewhat unique about this, this case. It's insane. I mean, when I read the book, it's absolutely insane when you read what's happening with this 
alternative school and the credit recovery system. And it just sort of blew my mind reading it. And so I guess, you know, we have to sort of go back to the beginning here. I mean, what is it like walking into Crossroads? So Crossroads is very different. You know, it's very, it's jarring, especially if you've been to Pinnacle or one of the other the high schools in the district. So, and sometimes when I do PowerPoint presentations on this work, I'll put up you know, a split screen slide kind of showing a similar picture taken, you know, from a similar vantage point at the two schools. And it's just very, very different. And so Crossroads, you know, whereas Pinnacle was on 55 acres, Crossroads is less than eight. Whereas Pinnacle has lots of green space, whether it be fields or tall trees, you know, Pinnacle has, or Crossroads, excuse me, has very little green space. In fact, the grass in front of the school is, you know, overgrown. The trees aren't pruned. The hedges that frame one of the gated entrances sort of trimmed, but, you know, parts of it are brown, like they're dying, they need water. So there's just almost like a different level of care just in terms of the upkeep of the grounds. And there's a perimeter fence that runs around Crossroads. It's very imposing. It's metal. It's about eight feet tall. Students can't leave the campus during the day. That fence, there's a gate that's locked all day, so there's only one entrance and exit through the main office, which is very different than Pinnacle, where students can leave from multiple sides. They can go leave, go to their car during a free period, you know, walk down the street to the market or to the ice cream shop or to the gas station where they can buy snacks or candy or a Gatorade. There's none of that freedom for Crossroads. Once students are in, they're kind of locked in all day. They can't leave. They have no off-campus privileges like the students at Pinnacle have. It's like a prison. Yes, it's very prison-like. And I actually had several students at Crossroads refer to it, you know, say, you know, it's like we're in prison or it's like we're being punished. It's like they think we're delinquents, that we're bad kids. And I think it's particularly striking when you remember that the only reason students are there is because they've been struggling academically. They're not there because they've committed, you know, done something illegal or engaged in illicit activity on campus. It's actually another alternative school for that. This is the alternative school for students who are just struggling academically. And in fact, some of them aren't struggling academically. So there were students who got transferred to Crossroads simply because they maybe came from out of state or they came from another district in the middle of high school and not all of their credits transferred. So then they were labeled credit deficient and had to go and make it up. So instead of going to, you know, this kind of fancy public high school that they envisioned that their parents probably planned for when they moved, they find themselves at crossroads with these fences and this asphalt and these buildings that look like they're sort of low slung rectangular buildings that look like trailers. And that's where, you know, that's those are the classrooms. And the last feature I'll mention about Crossroads is it's arranged that these, these trailer looking buildings are arranged like three sides of a rectangle. And then there's a fence around it. And so what that means is there's sort of nowhere for students to be kind of by themselves. There's no privacy. So either you're in a classroom or you're sort of stepping out onto center stage, kind of in view of everybody else in the quad. So there's really no, which is something else that sort of makes it feel very prison-like. You're sort of always being watched. And I think that's something that students, they really feel and they feel like they're not, you know, there's sort of a lack of trust. And, you know, that that makes it a difficult place to be, particularly when you're coming from one of the other high schools and you you experience 
just that drastic difference. So what is it like for a student? I mean, do students at Crossroads end up recovering credits and going back to these comprehensive schools where they were shifted out of? Is it academically rigorous where students at Crossroads are really being mentored and tutored and and supported to get those credits to go back to the comprehensive school? No, that's the simple answer. It is not. And I think that's somewhat ironic because what's happening is the students who need the most help are being pushed from the school with the most resources to help them to a school that actually has fewer resources to, to help them. And just the academic environment is very different. You know, so imagine a school that's populated with students who have fallen behind on credits. That's a different environment than a school where everybody is sort of pushing to see which college they're going to get into. And so what I found is that students would often arrive at Crossroads, you know, with, with a fair amount of motivation to get back on track. If for no other reason than that, you know, they wanted to see their friends again, they wanted to be back on campus, maybe they wanted to have access to, you know, the art program or Crossroads, there's no library, you know, there's no sports teams, there's no after school, there's no clubs, there's no PTA. So I think sometimes students were really motivated, you know, they wanted to get back to kind of what they would call a real high school and be able to do real high school things. But over time, their motivation would wane and they would sort of get sucked into this culture of academic apathy, which I argue is created by the district when they essentially concentrate all of these students who are behind in one school. And so the students at Crossroads don't have a lot of kind of positive peer academic role models around them in the school in order, you know, to, to take their cues from and to study with and to, to sort of kind of help lift them up in a, in a sense and to keep them on the right track and to motivate them. You know, I don't think that's a uh, intentional on the part of the district. I think that they kind of envision this working in a, in a different way. But, you know, during my time doing this research, I found that only about 17% of eligible Crossroads students transferred back to their comprehensive high school. So that's students who had recovered enough credits to do so. And in part, that was because they decided, you know, it's, it's easier over. We barely have any homework. I don't really want to go back. Or it was because sometimes they would, there would be a lot of resistance from places like Pinnacle, you know, who, who wouldn't even, who wouldn't want to accept students back. And there'd be this back and forth. Why? I, I think that Pinnacle overall was, and I think a lot of the decisions that they made, I think they were thinking about their reputation. I think they were trying to manage that reputation. I think that they saw some students as beneficial to that reputation and other students as detrimental to that reputation. And I think Jamal is a really good kind of a, offers a case in point. So after he was transferred to Crossroads, well, a couple things about Jamal. One thing I'll say is that he often had trouble seeing the board, seeing the, the, the whiteboard uh, at, at Pinnacle. And he would sit in the back of the room. His assigned seat was, was, the, was like farthest from the whiteboard. And he would have trouble seeing the room and he would say things. I mean, remember one time in class, he said, I, I can't see the board. And the teacher said, well, why not, Jamal? And he said, because I'm blind. And everybody kind of chuckled. You know, they, they sort of thought he was kidding. They thought he was like a class clown. But he wasn't kidding. He needed to wear glasses for his vision. Now, he didn't always wear his glasses, which was you know, that was his responsibility. But the school never did anything to follow up with him to, you know, call home, make sure he has his glasses with him. They never really did that. When he got to Crossroads, they looked at his case file. They said, oh, this, 
you know, this student has trouble seeing. So they, they put him at the front of the room. They made sure he brought his glasses to school. But even if he didn't, he was up at the front, not the back. So, you know, crossroads, you know, there were times in which the crossroads environment, you know, could be beneficial. Sometimes in that intake process, they would find something that Pinnacle had just overlooked or made assumptions about. Jamal actually recovered enough credits pretty quickly or recovered a lot of credits really quickly to the point where I actually saw him back at Pinnacle three weeks after he had been transferred and he was on his way to football practice. And I found out that Pinnacle was allowing him to play football, but they actually weren't allowing him to be in the classroom. So he could play sports for Pinnacle, which didn't have a very good football team. He was their best player, but he couldn't be in the classroom, which I found really strange. You know, I was actually a scholarship athlete um, in college. And, you know, if you're on like academic probation in college, what do they do? They take your sport away, right? They say you can't play in the game. They don't say you can play in the game, but you can't go to class. So in some ways, the pinnacle to me was sort of doing it backwards, right? They were essentially saying you're an asset to us on the field, but you're a liability to us in the classroom. I think that was the message that they were sending. And, you know, I'm not sure that's the best way to go about education. You know, I think it's about what can the school do for the student, not what can the student do for the school. But that, I think that was the posture that Pinnacle had. It's sort of just dumbfounding, you know, when I think about it. It's just sort of insane, this between-school sort of segregation, as you call it. So, you know, the U.S. has a long history of segregation in its public schools. Uh, is this a new form? Like, is this something that is relatively new and is happening beyond just these two schools? Like, how do you make sense of this type of segregation? Yeah, I think in general, you know, in the United States, school segregation is linked to neighborhood segregation. What we tend to see in terms of public school systems is student lives in neighborhood X, and that means they go to school X. Another student lives in neighborhood Y, they go to school Y. And so if neighborhoods X and Y are segregated neighborhoods, then schools X and Y will be segregated schools. I think that's a simple way to kind of understand it, and I think that's the most accurate way to understand it. And that's why various measures, whether it be busing or uh, school choice, are only sort of limited in their ability to address that fundamental problem of kind of residential racial segregation in America leading to segregated public schools. What's interesting about Valley View is the level of residential segregation in the city is pretty low. It's one of the lowest of, of a city of its size in the country. And so the segregation that I write about in the book is due to these institutional mechanisms, many of which are, are, are hidden, like this credit deficiency, these, you know, these policies around kind of a threshold of credit deficiency and then pressuring students to transfer and trying to keep them at crossroads and not let them come back, those sorts of things. You know, and I sort of outline all of these things in the book. And so the credit recovery, alternative education, continuation school system, it's not a new thing. It's been happening for decades in the United States. You know, originally it was something uh, that was meant to be a kind of a safety net to prevent high school dropout. That was the sort of original idea behind having these sorts of schools in districts. So it was a way to catch those students who otherwise would drop out. And I think it's been relatively successful in that. It certainly has ramped up in the last couple of decades. There have been some incentives, you know, through various policies and laws on the state level and national level 
to uh, that have incentivized public schools to push students to continuation schools in order mm-hmm. to keep their graduation rates higher. And I think so that's meant that, you know, it, the numbers have really gone up. So in the United States overall, there are roughly half a million kids who attend comprehensive high schools. Almost 90,000 of those are in the state of California alone. It's not a kind of a non-trivial amount. I think that the Valley View case is sort of a, uh, you know, a somewhat extreme case, but of something that is pretty widespread in states across the country. And I say it's an extreme case just because of kind of the hyper rigorous sort of, you know, lofty, almost cutthroat academic environment. But certainly you see this in other districts. Sometimes you see these schools will be, you know, in, in, in strip malls or, you know, they're built on vacant lots where they're sort of in more cramped spaces. So I think that, you know, what I'm describing in Valley View is kind of a particularly vivid example of something that we see, you know, really throughout the country. Well, Sean Drake, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It's just so nice to talk to you and congratulations on your new book. It really is just eye-opening in a way. And I, I highly recommend it to people to just get an in-depth sort of look at what is happening with between school segregation. So thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Sean Drake is an assistant professor at Syracuse University. His new book is called Academic Apartheid. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Oktas, Obafemian Gunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboten, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the Shakta Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.